One of the biggest challenges for CLTV is product isn't creating enough new stuff to sell. <laughs> That's like, when you really boil it down, if somebody doesn't have a leaky bucket and they don't have great lifetime value or they don't have great upsell or net retention, it's usually they're not adding enough stuff. They're not giving the sales team enough stuff. Sales can't real, and customer success can't do anything once you've driven all the adoption and there's nothing more to do, right? And so you got to have a product engine that's innovating. And then you got to have a pricing model, which typically is coming out of product marketing or whatever, that allows for that lifetime value that's not capped out, right? That's not just like $10,000 a year and that's it, right? Because then it's like, okay, well, where do I go from there? Um, So to me, it does require cross-departmental inside your company as well. The way we think about customers and growth is changing. Welcome to Customer Lifetime Value University Podcast. Our goal here is simple. In under 30 minutes, we aim to give you an implementable strategy to increase your customer lifetime value. That's it. No fluff, all strategy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to class. I'm incredibly excited to have Nick, CEO of Gainsight, a category creating company here with me today. Nick, thanks for hopping on. Casey, awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. So Nick, take a moment, give people, I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with Gainsight, but for any that aren't, give them a little background on Gainsight and your own kind of journey here. Yeah. So my journey at Gainsight, I guess, have gone through, we've gone through the same journey together. So, you know, before Gainsight, I had started my career in the early days working in what's called on-premise software, meaning you sell customers products, they buy them, they pay you all the money up front, they install it, whether they use it or not, it's up to them, right? And I got my experience before Gainsight, right before this, running my first SaaS company. And it was the first time where our customers paid us as they go, and they wouldn't pay us if they weren't using it, and they could easily switch if they wanted to. And so what happened was that business model shift, as you know very well, Casey, shifted the power dynamic from the vent from the vendor to the customer and shifted the financial model from all to to the title of your show, from all the lifetime value mostly happening up front, like in that old model, you get that big old check up front, to that new world where the lifetime value comes over time, right? Over years and years and years. And so I saw firsthand how you can't just focus on selling to the customer and then walking away like you could before. And so when we launched Gainsight in 2013, we thought, gosh, every company that moves to subscription or SaaS or cloud or anything, consumption, they're going to have to start thinking about customer lifetime value. They're going to have to make sure their customers are successful. They're using their products. They've been onboarded so that they stay and they grow. And if they don't do that, they're never going to make any money. And in 2013, that idea was like kind of it was new. Most people didn't know what it was. And now it's sort of super obvious. But, um, you know, in the early days, we had to do a lot of evangelism around this. A hundred percent. And so how do you, how do you think about, I mean, there's so many levers when it comes to customer lifetime value, right? There's expansion revenue and there's upselling and there's retention. So I guess just at kind of a high level, if someone is kind of starting to pay more attention to this, they realize this is critical. They're obviously probably familiar with the words customer lifetime value, but they're really trying to get more serious about embracing it on an organizational level. Where do you kick off on that kind of journey? Which one of those levers do you focus on or what's your kind of metric of thinking about that? Hundred percent. I think it's like any like a like a health diagnosis, right? You can't do everything at once, right? You can't all of a sudden change your whole health. You got to start with like the basics, right? So to me, you have to start with if there's a critical issue first, which is churn. Okay, so you start and say, is our churn and specifically are we losing a lot of customers? And what I would say, just to give you ballpark numbers, is if you're an enterprise-oriented business, being selling to big companies, if your retention is less than like eighty percent, you've got a problem. 
And if you're an SMB-oriented company, it's selling smaller companies, if your retention is less than 70%, you've got a problem. So first, you got to fix, as, as you know very well, that leaky bucket, meaning the customers come in and they just leave. And so within that, there's a lot of strategies from looking at your onboarding to how you drive adoption to how you make sure like when the sponsor changes at your customer, you stay in touch with the next one. So that's kind of phase one, right? Get your adoption. Your retention doesn't have to be perfect. You don't, you don't need 100%. But you got to get to a level that I think is decent, right? Which again, enterprise, probably 85, 80, 85, 90. SMB, probably 75, 80, right? So get, get your to that level. Okay, phase two. Then you can start saying, okay, how do we drive more of that like natural expansion in our accounts, which kind of make me more, more seats if you have seat-based product or more consumption or more usage, but like same buyer, how do we get them to do more? Right. And so that's usually a pretty tight relationship between customer success and sales. It's about driving more value, driving more adoption, driving more usage. But how do we make it not just defense, but offense? That's, that's phase two. You go from kind of defense to offense. Phase three then is, you know, well, okay, great. How do we actually use that knowledge and relationship to then drive more footholds of this product in other parts of our customer, right? Maybe different stakeholders, different business units. That's where you're really collaborating with sales because it's not just a natural expansion. It's almost like a new sales cycle, but you have the benefit of having a customer deployment. That's phase three. That's going to improve your net retention and your expansion. And then phase four is, okay, well, maybe your company has multiple products now. You're talking about not just selling the same product to multiple buyers, but, you know, different products, right? Maybe different types of stakeholders altogether. And then finally, phase five, which I don't want to hide because I think it's an important part of software is, okay, over time, you get more mature. You're doing all this R&D. You sometimes need to get more value for what you're delivering. That's price increases, right? And over time, companies do focus on how do I keep growing the value that I'm getting from my customer with the value I'm delivering to them? Because theoretically, you're making your product better every year and all that. So you want to go through that carefully. If you've got that leaky bucket problem, don't worry about all that other stuff. Go fix that first. But over time, you can kind of chip away at the different parts of lifetime value. 100%. So a number of these I'd love to dig into. So I guess starting from the end, when it comes to pricing, how do you think about, so I hear a lot of different insights from different people, from people that are saying you should be changing it every three months to people that are saying you should be changing it around key events. And then there's kind of this issue of grandfathering and how you deal with existing customer bases versus new customers. How do you think about pricing on your end? Price changes are like the biggest nightmare ever. <laughs> so if you're a big enough company, be careful about how often you do it. That would be rule number one. And be very thoughtful about the pricing you're setting. Because as you were just alluding to, Casey, most likely you're going to be living with that pricing in some of your contracts for years and years and years, no matter what you do. Right? You can change it, but how do you get those old customers migrated to the new pricing? And so number one is be really thoughtful about what you do and when you do it. And and don't get in that situation where every customer has their own pricing. That's kind of rule number one from, from my vantage point, right? Rule number two is obviously you want to design your pricing in a way that makes sense to the customer, right? It can't be something that's so complicated they don't understand it or it's a metric they don't even track, right? For example, the worst thing you can do in the world is having a pricing metric that requires the customer to go have a meeting to figure out what that number is for them, right? Everybody knows how many employees they have. Most people know how many customers they have, right? But if you're like, like, well, how many CPU cycles do you use for computing the database, something? And it's like, I don't know. Like, I don't, you're like literally killing your sales cycle. So understandable pricing, but then pricing aligned to the value being delivered over time in some way, right? Maybe it's you're, you're driving efficiency. So it should be tied to like the number of people or, or it's you're driving more, more revenue. So it's tied to your revenue growth or customers, but having it be aligned to some kind of lever. And then finally, pricing that allows you to grow not just in consumption, which is kind of your classic, you know, more users, more seats, but ideal over time, maybe in stratifying to more functionality. And this is where over time, as you know, Casey, many companies move to the kind of good, better, best package-based pricing. 
Salesforce does it. Pretty, pretty much everyone eventually does it. And it's ideas, okay, I want to have kind of different ways that customers can graduate in not just their volume of usage, but their maturity of usage of our system. Now, you talked about grandfathering. To me, that's one of the hardest questions. And like broadly, can I raise this customer's prices, right? And so that's where you have to pretty have a pretty good understanding of the value they're receiving and the stickiness they have with you. Because if you don't have that and you fly in blind and are like, your prices are going up, 10% or whatever, you're going to create all kinds of churn, right? So the best companies out there have a really good knowledge of the value and adoption and stickiness so they can be a little more surgical with which customers do you maybe let ride a little bit further on the old pricing and which ones can you more aggressively migrate to the new pricing? That totally makes sense. And I'm curious as you're talking through that, how this kind of ties in also with like annual contracts or, or multi-year contracts, right? Because now if you make those shifts and they're in the middle of a, like there's some, there's some new variables there. So how do you think about contracting in conjunction with that? Yeah, it's interesting because I think like the first time you hear about contracts, you're like, oh, I want the longest contract possible, right? Duh, like I want them to commit forever. But then you're like, oh, actually, if I have shorter contracts, if my stuff is sticky, I have an opportunity to get more value through price increases and so on, right? And so I think it's a trade-off. So number one thing to think about is your time to value. So if you have an enterprise type product, and those enterprise type products often have, you know, time to value measured in, you know, two months, four months, six months, then you better have a multi-year contract, right? Because otherwise you get a, you get kind of squeezed where you're like, oh shoot, it took us eight months to go live and the renewal is coming up. And now we have to like justify the value and you're actually downselling to keep the customer. And so one variable is what's my time to value? So that initial contract needs to be several multiples of the time to value, right? So for example, if your time to value is a month, you can probably get away with a 12-month contract. If your time to value six months, you better get two years, right? So that's that's the first thing. But then you can start thinking about what's that renewal term. And so you could actually potentially be renewing on shorter terms, right? And so now the customer probably has the opposite incentive. They're like, I want to lock up a long-term renewal, which by the way is great. That's a sign that they believe in it. And so you have a little bit of a dynamic there. But if you have a high fast time to value product, there's a decent number of companies out there who are like one-year contracts, make it low friction to buy, and I'm going to get a little bit of leverage as you go forward. So you got to think about your time to value and your stickiness to determine contract length. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's awesome. And I, I feel like we could riff on that for a while, but there's a, a couple of these I want to dive into. Like the other one I think is super interesting is you talked about product to platform and that's becoming really big, right? A lot of companies are trying to make that transition. So where do you, what do you think kind of as the uh, right time or impetus of when someone should make that shift? I mean, is it a revenue mark? Is it kind of like an organizational level when someone should kind of expand beyond product to platform um, and I guess kind of tying this into customer lifetime value, what have you seen from companies that do make that leap in regards to customer lifetime value? Okay, great. So on the first one, I'll tell you, we're going through it now. And I think a simple like symptom of going from product to platform is your pr- pricing deck or your pricing content is like, 20 pages, right? Like, like that's what it was for Gainsight because it's like, okay, feature X, feature Y, feature Z, feature A, feature B, right? And so you end up, because typically you start with the product and then you start adding on features, let people could buy or, or like modules or whatever. And then it's like so complicated. You're gotta, we gotta simplify it down to three packages or four packages or five, right? Good, better, best, you know, something like that. So the complexity of your pricing sheets can give you intel into like what, how important it is to move to packages, right? If you, if your pricing real already pretty simple, you don't need to move packages. But typically what happens is, as you know, Casey, as you add more, you, your company grows, 
your customer base matures, you build functionality for some of those advanced customers, but you have all these new ones coming in and you're in this tough trade-off. Do I give all the advanced functionality to everyone? But then they end up with all the stuff they're not using and they get frustrated. But on the flip side, do I not build it, but then I have no way to grow and my customers are frustrated, I'm not innovating. And so that's why you naturally end up with package-based pricing, good, better, best, whatever you call it, over time, platform-based pricing over time. But to me, it's all about the complexity of what you have now. And if it's too complex, you got to simplify you want to go back to your second question? What was the second one again? Yeah, just around customer lifetime value and the impact that um, you've kind of seen personally for companies that make that leap on CLTV. Yeah, so then I think then your psychology starts shifting because you start shifting from, oh, how do I upsell this one feature to how do I get more people upgraded to this new module? And one, one of the things that's nice, Casey, from a CLTV perspective is you can actually probably model it much better. You just look at what Salesforce does. They do such a great job. You go to the pricing page and there's, you know, a, a small number of packages. I forget four or five, six right now, right? And they can kind of model, okay, how many people are on that lower end package? How many people are on the ultimate or performance or whatever the top version is? And you can start modeling your lifetime value by what percentage upgrade every year. And it becomes kind of a better math formula. It's a little more complicated if you have a hundred features and how many people are gonna buy those. It, the math is just more complicated. So your, your sales motion becomes, instead of a selling motion, it becomes an upgrade motion. How do I upgrade customers and convince them to go from package A to package B to package C? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And how do you think about another caller I had on was talking about something I thought was interesting, which is kind of like the positioning and alignment, basically this idea that if the alignment isn't good on initial pricing or if it's unclear, right, that can actually impact, even though that's kind of pre-sale, it can impact customer lifetime value because you have people that kind of get into the ecosystem and might see early stage churn because of that misalignment. How do you think about in terms of what information should be presented? How in-depth do you go on the pricing page? When do you push people to talk to reps? And I know obviously that depends on a lot of variables, but do you have a general way that you kind of think about that? Yeah, I think one general rubric is, you know, if your product tends to have most of its TAM in kind of like mainstream, smaller businesses or smaller departments and bigger companies, small purchases, if most of your business is going to come from smaller deals, you definitely want very transparent pricing on the web, right? For sure. And then maybe an enterprise call us, right? And that's like, you know, you see a lot of these future of work, collaboration, Notion, Airtable, they all have super transparent pricing. On the flip side, I will say, and this is just the reality, if your product tends to get most of its business from like the top, you know, 5,000 companies in the world or top 10,000, your average deals are 200 grand a year or 500 grand a year, you probably want a little less transparency because essentially what happens is procurement at those customers want to have some ability to negotiate. And so there's some benefit in having that, like my CRO says it well, it's called there's margin in mystery. That's the phrase he uses, right? <laughs> and it's like, there's some benefit in actually having, you know, some levers. And it's it's not even it's not even like trying to game the customer. It's that the, the procurement person themselves at the customers trying to get a good deal, right? And so therefore they want to actually, like they actually don't want transparent pricing. Strangely enough, the big company procurement, they want to be able to go to their boss and say, yeah, you know, this company started at X and I got them down to 30% of you know, off, right? A danger you can have is you, you have totally transparent pricing. You try to go to the enterprise and that, that procurement person looks at that transparent pricing as a starting point, right? And you're like, no, this is just what it is. And they're like, well, we never buy anything at list, you know? And then you're like, oh, what do we, what do we do now? So I've seen some companies kind of shoot themselves in the foot. So the core question to ask is, where is most of my TAM? Is it in these big multi-hundred thousand, multi-million dollar deals? Or is it mostly a bunch of $5,000, $10,000 sales? And that should help guide which way you go. Yeah, that makes that totally makes sense. And I think is often 
I think a lot of people do a poor job of that or kind of misunderstand that. So that's totally. I think a good a good note for people. You also talked about cross-departmental collaboration. And so I guess, I think this is a really interesting concept because I feel like everyone kind of talks about it, right? Like everyone, no one's going to say cross-departmental collaboration is bad, but how do you really do this in a way that drives an increase in customer lifetime value from like an organizational level? How do you facilitate that um, and, and allow basically that to happen? And Casey, do you mean cross-departmental within your company or at the customer, the, the, between the departments at the customer? Which one are you talking about? Well, I was thinking of I was thinking of internally, but I guess when you were going through your list, I was I was taking down notes on all the points you were making, and you're talking about kind of cross departmental collaboration. And so, I guess whatever way you were meaning it, I meant more at the customer. So, what I meant by there is you sure. you sold your product into the marketing department, and now you're trying to sell into the sales department of your customer. So that's actually more Got like it. a client yeah, yeah. view. But I think that there is an element of you know CLTV is a company wide activity. So inside your company, as you know very well. What do you have? You've got your customer success team retaining, trying to drive value, trying to drive adoption. You got your sales team trying to introduce new offerings. You know, the CS and sales are working really closely together. Sales is doing a good handoff to CS after the sale, right? You've got your product team hopefully innovating and adding new things to create more of an upsell value. By the way, one of the biggest challenges for CLTV is product isn't creating enough new stuff to sell. <laughs> That's like when you really boil it down, if somebody doesn't have a leaky bucket and they don't have great lifetime value or they don't have great upsell or net retention, it's usually they're not adding enough stuff. They're not giving the sales team enough stuff. Sales can't real and customer success can't do anything once you've driven all the adoption and there's nothing more to do, right? And so you got to have a product engine that's innovating. And then you got to have a pricing model, which typically is coming out of product marketing or whatever, that allows for that lifetime value that's not capped out, right? That's not just like, $10,000 a year and that's it, right? Because then it's like, okay, well, where do I go from there? Um, so to me, it does require cross-departmental inside your company as well. And is that where you think about, when you think about like the onus of customer lifetime value, do you also think about that very much in a cross-departmental way? 100%. That's kind of why you know, I think it's not, it's a misnomer to say it, it's lifetime value belongs to one department. Like mo many people might say, oh, lifetime value, that's a customer success team's job. I'm like, yeah, they're the, they're the tip of the spear, but you got to bring sales in. You got to get new products to sell. You have a good pricing model. Like you all work together around lifetime value. Yeah, 100%. Well, these are some phenomenal takeaways. Is there anything else that you think about in the framework of customer lifetime value that you would want to kind of direct people towards? So I think that there's an element up front. We, we, we have that kind of discussion about breaking down the different parts of lifetime value, you know, churn and, you know, new, new seats and new products. One thing I've learned in general is over time, you got to go on offense. You got to be growing your account. Because if you look at the customer's view, that company has a lot of different technology vendors. And I, you know, I, Eve Gainside, you know, we're, we're 1100 person company. We have a lot of vendors that we use. My CIO constantly looking how we reduce vendors. So if you are not growing in your customer base, you are on the path to churn. That's bottom line. If your customer isn't doing more with you, they're going to be doing less with you. There's no status quo. So that's why you have to like, once you get off of the defense and the churn reduction, you've got to figure out ways to grow your spend with that customer. And they want to too. I mean, I've actually talked to some of our customers. They're like, you got to get, literally the customer says, you got to get bigger with us. Like, cause we're not, you're not big enough with us yet. I'm like, really? You just told me to sell you more stuff. And they're like, yeah. Cause from their boss's vantage point, the boss doesn't want all these vendors. Right. So they, they, they need Gainsight to do more for that customer, right? Spend more money. And so that's to me something that's really important. You can't get there on just preventing customers from leaving alone. You got to grow, grow your spend with the customer as well. 
Yeah. And do you have any, like, in terms of, obviously, I think, you know, part of that is like this idea of being proactive, right? Yeah. So do you have certain like key milestones where you encourage people to be proactive or is it kind of like vary by industry? Like when are those points that are the inflections? After good onboarding. So number one, that's a great time to be like talking about new products and services. Sponsorship, stakeholder change. You go in stakeholder change, meaning like the person you sold to left, new person comes in and you're often very defensive, but actually like sometimes that's a great chance to expand the relationship, particularly if you have good advocates that are coming in, right? That's a great time. Obviously at the renewal, you know all about that, Casey. That's a good time to like most customers review their spending and they look at other stuff, right? Um, new product launches, great time to kind of have the conversation. That's that's obvious because that, that happens kind of naturally, right? Conferences, you do your conference, like great time to be talking about new modules, um, the, the thing I just close out with is it's not, some people think of like customer success and selling as like at odds with each other. And that's totally wrong. If you don't, if you believe your company has a good value proposition for your customer, you should want them to buy more from you. And if you don't believe that, why the heck do you work at that company? Quit your job, go work somebody you believe in. But if you believe that sales is antithetical to customer success, you probably are doing something wrong, either with the company you're working at or the way you think about it. I love that. That's such a powerful message. And I, I agree. I think that's a that's a hugely important thing for people to embrace. So so Nick, last thing, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, if they want to contact, they want to learn more about Gainsight, what's the best channel to do that? Yeah, I mean, obviously go to Gainsight.com, check out Gainsight if you want, and feel free to follow me on Twitter, N-R-M-E-H-T-A. You'll see lots of stuff about lifetime value, net retention, NFL football, music. Uh, it's, a, it's a smorgasbord of stuff. And uh, you can you can hit me up on LinkedIn if you want as well. Sounds brilliant. Nick, grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Casey. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Customer Lifetime Value University podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Bonjoro, the world's first customer loyalty platform, giving you the tools to create customer loyalty and leverage that loyalty to improve your customer lifetime value. 